Chapter Six of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six The True Woman. Susan's preoccupation with anti slavery work did not lessen her interest in woman's advancement. Her own expanding courage and ability showed her the possibilities for all women in widened horizons and activities. These possibilities were the chief topic of conversation when she and Elizabeth Stanton were together. With Mrs. Stanton's young daughters, Margaret and Harriet, in mind, they were continually planning ways and means of developing the new woman or the true woman, as they liked to call her. And one of these ways was physical exercise in the fresh air, which was almost unheard of for women except on the frontier. Taking off her hoop and working in the garden in the freedom of her long calico dress, Susan was refreshed and exhilarated. Uncovered the strawberry and raspberry beds, her diary records. Worked with Simon building frames for the grapevines and the peach orchards. Set out 18 English black currants, 22 English gooseberries, and muscatine grapevines. Finished setting out the apple trees and 600 blackberry bushes. She knew how little this strengthening work and healing influence touched the lives of most women hemmed in by the walls of their homes weighed down by bulky confining clothing fed on the tradition of weakness women could never gain the breadth of view courage and stamina needed to demand and appreciate emancipation she thought a great deal about this and how it could be remedied and wrote her friend thomas wentworth higginson the salvation of the race depends, in a great measure, upon rescuing women from their hothouse existence. Whether in kitchen, nursery, or parlor, all alike are shut away from God's sunshine. Why did not your Caroline Plummer of Salem, why do not all of our wealthy women leave money for industrial and agricultural schools for girls? instead of ever and always providing for boys alone. An exceptional opportunity was now offered, Susan, to speak on the controversial subject of co-education before the State Teachers Association, which only a few years before had been shocked by the sound of a woman's voice. Deeply concerned over her ability to write the speech, she at once appealed to Elizabeth Stanton, do you please mark out a plan and give me as soon as you can? Busy with preparations for women's rights meetings in popular New York summer resorts, Saratoga Springs, Lake George, Clifton Springs, and Avon, she grew panicky at the prospect of her impending speech and dashed off another urgent letter to Mrs. Stanton, underlining it vigorously for emphasis not a word written and mercy only knows when i can get a moment and what is worse as the lord knows full well is that if i get all the time the world has 
I can't get up a decent document. It is of but small moment who writes the address, but of vast moment that it be well done. No woman but you can write from my standpoint, for all would base their strongest argument on the unlikeness of the sexes. Those of you who have the talent to do honor to poor, oh, how poor womanhood have all given yourselves over to baby-making and left poor brainless me to battle alone. It is a shame such a lady as I might be spared to rock cradles, but it is a crime for you and Lucy and Nettie. On a separate page, she outlined for Mrs. Stanton the points she wanted to make. Her title was affirmative, why the sexes should be educated together. Because, she reasoned, by such education they get true ideas of each other because the endowment of both public and private funds is ever for those of the male sex, while all the seminaries and boarding schools for females are left to maintain themselves as best they may by means of their tuition fees, consequently cannot afford a faculty of first-class professors. Not a school in the country gives to the girl equal privileges with the boy. No school requires, and but very few allow the girls to declaim and discuss side by side with the boys. Thus, they are robbed of half of education. The grand thing that is needed is to give the sexes like motives for acquirement. Very rarely a person studies closely without hope of making that knowledge useful as a means of support. Mrs. Stanton wrote her at once. Come here, and I will do what I can to help you with your address, if you will hold the baby and make the puddings. Gratefully, Susan hurried to Seneca Falls, and together they loaded her gun, not only for the teachers' convention, but for all the summer meetings. Addressing the large teachers' meeting in Troy, Susan declared that mental sex differences did not exist. She called attention to the ever-increasing variety of occupations which women were carrying on with efficiency. There were women typesetters, editors, publishers, authors, clerks, engravers, watchmakers, bookkeepers, sculptors, painters, farmers, and machinists. 250 women were serving as postmasters. Girls, she insisted, must be educated to earn a living, and more vocations must be open to them as an incentive to study. A woman, she added, needs no particular kind of education to be a wife and mother any more than a man does to be a husband and father. A man cannot make a living out of these relations. He must fill them with something more, and so must women. Her advanced ideas did not cause as much consternation as she had expected, and she was asked to repeat her speech at the Massachusetts Teachers' Convention. But the thoughts of many in that audience were echoed by the President when he said to her after the meeting, Madame, 
that was a splendid production and well delivered i could not have asked for a single thing different either in matter or manner but i would rather have followed my wife or daughter to greenwood cemetery than to have had her stand here before this promiscuous audience and deliver that address it was one thing to talk about coeducation but quite another to offer a resolution putting the new york state teachers association on record as asking all schools colleges and universities to open their doors to women this susan did at their next convention and while there were enough women present to carry the resolution most of them voted against it listening instead to the emotional arguments of a group of conservative men who prophesied that coeducation would coarsen women and undermine marriage nor did she forget the negro at these conventions but brought much criticism upon herself by offering resolutions protesting the exclusion of negroes from public schools academies colleges and universities such controversial activities were of course eagerly reported in the press and henry stanton reading his newspaper pointed them out to his wife remarking dryly well my dear another notice of susan you stir up susan and she stirs up the world the best method of arousing women and spreading new ideas susan decided was holding women's rights conventions for the discussions at these conventions covered a wide field and were not limited merely to women's legal disabilities the feminists of that day extolled freedom of speech and their platform, like that of anti-slavery conventions, was open to anyone who wished to express an opinion. Always the limited educational opportunities offered to women were pointed out, and Oberlin College and Antioch, both coeducational, were held up as patterns for the future. Resolutions were passed, demanding that Harvard and Yale admit women, Women's low wages and the very few occupations open to them were considered, and whether it was fitting for women to be doctors and ministers. At one convention, Lucy Stone made the suggestion that a prize be offered for a novel on women, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, to arouse the whole nation to the unjust situation of women whose slavery she felt was comparable to that of the negro at another william lloyd garrison maintained that women had the right to sit in the congress and in state legislatures and that there should be an equal number of men and women in all national councils inevitably scriptural edicts regarding women's sphere were thrashed out with antoinette brown in her clerical capacity, setting at rest the minds of questioning women and quashing the protests of clergymen who thought they were speaking for God. Usually Ernestine Rose was on hand, ready to speak when needed, injecting into the discussions her liberal, clear-cut feminist views. Nor was the international aspect of the women's rights movement forgotten. 
the interest in Great Britain in the franchise for women of such men as Lord Brougham and John Stuart Mill was reported, as were the efforts there among women to gain admission to the medical profession. Distributed widely as a tract was the admirable article in the Westminster Review, The Enfranchisement of Women, by Harriet Taylor, now Mrs. John Stuart Mill. In New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana, where state conventions were held annually, women carried back to their homes and their friends new and stimulating ideas. National conventions, which actually represented merely the northeastern states and Ohio, and occasionally attracted men and women from Indiana, Missouri, and Kansas, were scheduled by Susan to meet every year in New York, simultaneously with anti-slavery conventions. Thus, she was assured of a brilliant array of speakers, for the Garrisonian abolitionists were sincere advocates of women's rights. Both Elizabeth Stanton and Lucy Stone were a great help to Susan in preparing for these national gatherings for which she raised the money. Elizabeth wrote the calls and resolutions, while Lucy could not only be counted on for an eloquent speech, but through her wide contacts brought new speakers and new converts to the meetings. However, National Women's Rights Conventions would probably have lapsed completely during the troubled years prior to the Civil War, had it not been for Susan's persistence. She was obliged to omit the 1857 convention because all of her best speakers were either having babies or were kept at home by family duties. Lucy's baby, Alice Stone Blackwell, was born in September, 1857. Then Antoinette's first child, and Mrs. Stanton's seventh. Impatient to get on with the work, Susan chafed at the delay. And when Lucy wrote her, I shall not assume the responsibility for another convention until I have had my ten daughters. Susan was beside herself with apprehension. When Lucy told her that it was harder to take care of a baby day and night than to campaign for women's rights, she felt that Lucy regarded as unimportant her common work of hiring halls, engaging speakers, and raising money. This rankled for although Susan realized it was work without glory, she did expect Lucy to understand its significance. Mrs. Stanton sensed the makings of a rift between Susan and these young mothers, Lucy and Antoinette, and knowing from her own experience how torn a woman could be between rearing a family and work for the cause, she pleaded with Susan to be patient with them. Let them rest a while in peace and quietness, and think great thoughts for the future, she wrote Susan. It is not well to be in the excitement of public life all the time. Do not keep stirring them up or mourning over their repose. You need rest, too. Let the world alone a while. 
we cannot bring about a moral revolution in a day or a year. But Susan could not let the world alone. There was too much to be done. In addition to her woman's rights and anti-slavery work, she gave a helping hand to any good cause in Rochester, such as a protest meeting against capital punishment, a series of Sunday evening lectures, or establishing a free church like that headed by Theodore Parker in Boston, where no one doctrine would be preached and all would be welcome. There were days when weariness and discouragement hung heavily upon her. Then, impatient that she alone seemed to be carrying the burden of the whole woman's rights movement, she complained to Lydia Mott, There is not one woman left who may be relied on. All have first to please their husbands, after which there is little time or energy left to spend in any other direction. How soon the last standing monuments, yourself and myself, Lydia, will lay down the individual shovel and de hoe, and with proper zeal and spirit grasp those of some masculine hand, the mercies and the spirits only know. I declare to you that I distrust the powers of any woman, even of myself, to withstand the mighty matrimonial maelstrom. To Elizabeth Stanton she confessed, I have very weak moments, and long to lay my weary head somewhere and nestle my full soul to that of another in full sympathy. I sometimes fear that I too shall faint by the wayside and drop out of the ranks of the faithful few. Susan thought a great deal about marriage at this time about how it interfered with the development of women's talents and their careers, how it usually dwarfed their individuality. Nor were these thoughts wholly impersonal, for she had attentive suitors during these years. Her diary mentions moonlight rides and adds, Mr. walked home with me, marvelously attentive. What a pity such powers of intellect should lack the moral spine. Her standards of matrimony were high, and she carefully recorded in her diary Lucretia Mott's wise words. In the true marriage relation, the independence of the husband and wife is equal, their dependence mutual, and their obligations reciprocal. Marriage and the differences of the sexes were often discussed at the many meetings she attended, and when remarks were made which to her seemed to limit in any way the free and full development of women, she always registered her protest. She had no patience with any unrealistic glossing over of sex attraction and spurned the theory that women express love and man wisdom that these two qualities reached out for each other and blended in marriage. Because she spoke frankly for those days and did not soften the impact of her words with sentimental flowery phrases, her remarks were sometimes called coarse and animal. But she justified them in a letter to Mrs. Stanton, who thought, as she did, to me it, sex, is not coarse or gross. If it is a fact, 
there it is. She was reading at this time Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Aurora Lee, called by Ruskin the greatest poem in the English language, but criticized by others as an indecent romance revolting to the purity of many women. Susan had bought a copy of the first American edition, and she carried it with her wherever she went. After a hard, active day, she found inspiration and refreshment in its pages. No matter how dreary the hotel room or how unfriendly the town, she no longer felt lonely or discouraged, for Aurora Lee was a companion ever at hand, giving her confidence in herself, strengthening her ambition, and helping her build a satisfying, constructive philosophy of life. On the fly-leaf of her worn copy, which in later years she presented to the Library of Congress, she wrote, This book was carried in my satchel for years, and read and re-read. The noble words of Elizabeth Barrett, as Wendell Phillips always called her, sunk deep into my heart. I have always cherished it above all other books. I now present it to the Congressional Library with the hope that women may more and more be like Aurora Lee. The beauty of its poetry enchanted her, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning's feminism found an echo in her own. She pencil-marked the passages she wanted to reread. When her common work of hiring halls and engaging speakers seemed unimportant and even futile, she found comfort in these lines. Be sure no earnest work of any honest creature, howbeit weak, imperfect, ill-adapted, fails so much. It is not gathered as a grain of sand to enlarge the sum of human action used for carrying out God's end. Let us be content in work, to do the thing we can, and not presume to fret because it's little. Glorying in work, she read with satisfaction, The honest, earnest man must stand and work, the woman also, otherwise she drops, at once below the dignity of man excepting serfdom. Free men freely work. Whoever fears God fears to sit at ease. Could she have written poetry, these words, spoken by Aurora, might well have been her own. You misconceive the question like a man who sees a woman as the complement of his sex merely. You forget too much that every creature, female as the male, stands single in responsible act and thought, as also in birth and death. Whoever says to a loyal woman, love and work with me, will get fair answers, if the work and love, being good of themselves, are good for her, the best she was born for. Inspired by Aurora Lee, Susan planned a new lecture, The True Woman, and as she wrote it out word for word, her thoughts and theories about women, which had been developing through the years, crystallized. 
In her opinion, the true woman could no more than Aurora Lee follow the traditional course and sacrifice all for the love of one man, adjusting her life to his whims. She must instead develop her own personality and talents, advancing in learning, in the arts, in science, and in business, cherishing at the same time her noble, womanly qualities. Susan hoped that some day the full development of woman's individuality would be compatible with marriage, and she held up as an ideal the words which Elizabeth Barrett Browning put into the mouth of Aurora Lee. The world waits for help. Beloved, let us work so well. Our work shall still be better for our love, and still our love be sweeter for our work, and both commended for the sake of each by all true workers and true lovers born. She expressed this hope in her own practical words to Lydia Mott. Institutions, among them marriage, are justly chargeable with many social and individual ills, but, after all, the whole man or woman will rise above them. I am sure my true woman will never be crushed or dwarfed by them. Woman must take to her soul a purpose, and then make circumstances conform to this purpose, instead of forever singing the refrain, if and if and if. Late in 1858, Susan received a letter from Wendell Phillips which put new life into all her efforts for women. He wrote her that an anonymous donor had given him $5,000 for the woman's rights cause, and that he, Lucy Stone, and Susan had been named trustees to spend it wisely and effectively. The man who felt that the woman's rights cause was important enough to rate a gift of that size proved to be wealthy Francis Jackson of Boston in whose home Susan had visited a few years before with Lucy and Antoinette. Jubilant over the prospects, she at once began to make plans. She wanted to use all of the fund for lectures, conventions, tracts, and newspaper articles. Lucy thought part of the money should be spent to prove unconstitutional the law which taxed women without representation, and Antoinette was eager for a share to establish a church in which she could preach woman's rights with the gospel. Both Wendell Phillips and Lucy Stone agreed that Susan should have $1,500 for the intensive campaign she had planned for New York, and for once in her life she started off without a financial worry, with money in hand to pay her speakers, she held meetings in all of the principal towns of the state, making them at least partially pay for themselves. Her lecturers each received $12 a week, and she kept a like amount for herself, for planning the tour, organizing the meetings, and delivering her new lecture, The True Woman. I am having fine audiences of thinking men and women, she wrote Mary Hallowell. 
Oh, if we could but make our meetings ring like those of the anti-slavery people, wouldn't the world hear us? But to do that, we must have souls baptized into the work and consecrated to it. Some souls were deeply stirred by the woman's rights gospel. One of these was the wealthy Boston merchant Charles F. Hovey, who, in his will, left $50,000 in trust to Wendell Phillips, William Lloyd Garrison, Parker Pillsbury, Abby Kelly Foster, and others, to be spent for the promotion of the anti-slavery cause and other reforms, among them women's rights, and not less than $8,000 a year to be spent to promote these reforms. With all this financial help available, Susan expected great things to happen. During the winter of 1860, while the legislature was in session, Susan spent six weeks in Albany with Lydia Mott, and day after day she climbed the long hill to the Capitol to interview legislators on amendments to the married woman's property laws. When these amendments were passed by the Senate, Assemblyman Anson Bingham urged her to bring their mutual friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, to Albany to speak before his committee to assure passage by the Assembly. Once again, Susan hurried to Seneca Falls, and unpacking her little portmanteau, stuffed with papers and statistics, discussed the subject with Mrs. Stanton in front of the open fire late into the night. Then the next morning, while Mrs. Stanton shut herself up in the quietest room in the house to write her speech, Susan gave the children their breakfast, sent the older ones off to school, watched over the babies, prepared the desserts, and made herself generally useful. By this time, the children regarded her affectionately as Aunt Thusan, and they knew they must obey her, for she was a stern disciplinarian, whom even the mischievous Stanton boys dared not defy. These visits of Susan's were happy, satisfying times for both these young women. A few days' respite from travel in a well-run home with a friend she admired did wonders for Susan, giving her perspective on the work she had already done and courage to tackle new problems, while for Mrs. Stanton this short period of stimulating companionship and freedom from household cares was a godsend. Miss Anthony had long ago become Susan to Elizabeth, but susan all through her life called her very best friend mrs stanton playfully to be sure but with a remnant of that formality which it was hard for her to cast off the speech was soon finished mrs stanton's imagination fired by her sympathetic understanding of woman's problems had turned susan's cold hard facts into moving prose while Susan, the best of critics, detected every weak argument or faltering phrase. They both felt they had achieved a masterpiece. Mrs. Stanton delivered this address before a joint session of the New York legislature in March 1860. Susan beamed with pride as she watched the large audience crowd even the galleries and heard the long, loud applause for the speech which she was convinced could not have been surpassed by any man in the United States. 
The next day, the assembly passed the Married Woman's Property Bill, and when shortly it was signed by the governor, Susan and Mrs. Stanton scored their first big victory, winning a legal revolution for the women of New York State. This new law was a challenge to women everywhere. Under it, a married woman had the right to hold property, real and personal, without the interference of her husband, the right to carry on any trade or perform any service on her own account, and to collect and use her own earnings. A married woman might now buy, sell, and make contracts, and if her husband had abandoned her or was insane, a convict, or a habitual drunkard, his consent was unnecessary. A married woman might sue and be sued. She was the joint guardian with her husband of her children, and on the decease of her husband the wife had the same rights that her husband would have at her death. Susan did not then realize the full significance of what she had accomplished, that she had unleashed a new movement for freedom which would be the means of strengthening the democratic government of her country. End of chapter 6